Good day and welcome to the Patently Strategic Podcast, where we discuss all things at the intersection of business, technology, and patents. This podcast is a monthly discussion amongst experts in the field of patenting. It is for inventors, founders, and IP professionals alike, established or aspiring. And in today's episode, we're talking about the use of government grants and the strings that can come attached to your IP. We'll be exploring the various types of small business research grants, how the Bayh-Dole Act regulates inventions generated under government grants, licensing and ownership implications for your patent when using federal dollars, and the sticky webs that you may find yourself in if you're not carefully tracking IP and adhering to the numerous provisions and timelines. The use of government grants for research and development is one of the most common areas of concern we get questions about from our clients. And for good reason, non-diluting capital can be an essential source of funding when trying to get your innovation off the ground. Investor money comes with loss of equity and or control. Family and friends' money may come with the risk of strained relationships. So essentially free money by way of government grants can seem like an obvious choice, right? And it is for many. The Small Business Technology Transfer, or STTR, and Small Business Innovation Research, or SBIR, grants are the largest source of early-stage capital for life science startups in the United States, combining to provide over $2 billion annually in support from federal agencies like the NIH. But like money from investors, friends, and families, these grants do still come with some serious strings attached and potential ramifications you need to be aware of. For instance, use of these funds grants the government a royalty-free license to practice your invention worldwide. To the surprise of many, and as we'll discuss, this can include royalty-free use of patents obtained before even applying for the grant. This is potentially a big problem, especially if the federal government could be one of your primary customers. Other provisions can result in lost ownership rights if you fail to commercialize or neglect to file the correct paperwork on time. Most of these things are manageable, but when considering government grants, you need to be aware of these gotchas so you're going in with clear eyes and can manage the hooks in a way that doesn't jeopardize your patent rights. And that awareness is our focus today. Dr. Ashley Sloat, President and Director of Patent Strategy here at Aurora, leads the discussion along with our all-star patent panel exploring how the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 regulates inventions under government grants, is a small business, what type of grants are available to you, and whether or not they can cover IP-related costs, the rights of the federal government to your invention when you use grant money, implications for using contractors to perform the work under the grant, and of course, some of the biggest gotchas and practical tips for avoiding them. Ashley is also joined today by our always exceptional group of IP experts, including Kristen Hansen, Patent Strategy Specialist at Aurora, Dr. David Jagrell, President of Jagrell Consulting, and Ty Davis, Patent Strategy Associate at Aurora. Before jumping in with the panel, we'd like to take you to the third installment of the Mossoff Minute, a new monthly segment that builds on our Patent Wars episode and features short conversations with Professor Adam Mossoff, providing updates and quick takes on movements in patent reform, significant court rulings, innovation policy happenings, and occasional Star Wars references. This month, we discuss the introduction of a very important piece of patent reform legislation called the Prevail Act. Very important developments this summer in patent policy with the introduction of the Prevail Act of 2023, co-sponsored primarily in the Senate by Senator Christopher Coons and Senator Tom Tillis. This bipartisan bill would bring much needed reform to the PTAB, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, uh, created in 2011 by the American Vents Act. Um, this administrative tribunal at the patent office that cancels patents at rates around now 83% or higher um, <clears throat> has been, I think, rightly accused of engaging in willy-nilly decision-making 
um, and in, in many cases, having been captured by its mission to cancel patents. Um, so the Prevail Act would impose important procedural and substantive safeguards uh, and, and uh, guardrails on how this agency acts. And here's the claims that patents are in fact invalid or not. Um, this is really important. It will bring stability and reliability back to the patent system and will help move us forward and restoring the gold standard patent system that the United States has historically had. Yes, the bill largely seeks to curb um, predatory infringement and undo uh, hopefully a lot of the damage caused by the American Invents Act uh, and its most unfortunate progeny, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which, as you mentioned, uh, collectively resulted in something along the lines of an 84% invalidation rate and uh, the death of thousands of patents at the hands of infringers looking to profit from uh, innovations that they didn't invest in or create. Um, the bill seems to largely be a refined version of the Stronger Patents Act, which um, we discussed previously. In that same discussion, um, our Patent Wars episode with you, Judge Michelle, uh, Randy Landrino of U.S. Inventor, we identified the core issues of AIA and the PTAB. Um, many of those center on differences in how the PTAB operates versus um, constitutionally defined courts. So among those issues that we sort of you know listed, prioritized, one was that the PTAB doesn't require standing so that validity of granted patents can be challenged by any member of the pat public um, offensively or defensively, um, whether or not they're being sued for infringement and whether or not they have anything at all to do with the patent whatsoever. Um, the PTAB also has a lowered burden of proof and a weakened presumption of validity um, that the courts afford to a patent that was previously reviewed by experts for potentially years. Uh, PTAB administrative patent judges, and I use air quotes intentionally, um, have no code of ethics about recusal on conflict of interest. Uh, so the individuals deciding validity can own stock in or have been employed by an accused infringer, even as legal counsel sometimes. Uh, the USPTO has admitted to panel stacking its APJs to reach priority and results. Um, the PTAB was sold as a faster, cheaper alternative to district courts, uh, but the average cost to defend a patent at the PTAB is somewhere around a half million dollars per case, uh, and it can take five to 10 years for a final result. Petitioners can keep filing petitions repeatedly, 30, 40, 50 against the same patent. I think I've heard you say as many as 90. Um, this is referred to as uh, serial petitioning. Uh, and the patent owner has to constantly pay to defend against countless bites of the same apple. And speaking of double jeopardy, uh, these challenges can also come after a patent is held valid in court under statute grounds not in purview of the PTAB. So that was a lot of context. Does the Prevail Act address some, all, or most of these issues? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, Josh, uh, that was a spectacular kind of bill of particulars and a well-pled uh, complaint <laughs> detailing <laughs> everything that is wrong with uh, with the PTAB, uh, uh, which is uh, I am on record uh, repeatedly in you know in white papers that I've published and op eds and in my commentary and my academic scholarship in which I have repeatedly identified uh, the PTAB um, as an, you know, as an administrative tribunal that is um, for all intents and purposes kind of, you know, out of control and is, uh, has wrecked um, havoc on the U.S. innovation economy. Um, and, and, and a lot of it, a lot of this goes back to kind of its very founding uh, you know, generation in the American Vents Act, um, you know, it, which, you know, 
imposes almost no limits on the PTAB. Um, you know, I think the uh, you know, the I the, what we refer to as the IPR process, right? The you know, Interparties Review process. I think um, you know, in the American Vents Act, the you know the entirety of the provisions that govern how this process will occur, both procedurally and substantively, are about eight provisions. I mean, for what is supposed to be this, you know, this very substantive and uh, you know. Uh, uh, um, you know, a, a, a hearing process. It was supposed to have been a hearing, you know, these hearings, administrative hearings. Um, and so for all intents and purposes, what happened here is, you know, Congress got caught up in this narrative of, you know, the the uh, so-called patent troll, um, you know, which I think has now been well-established as a policy narrative pushed by big tech and, 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 and other companies um, to create this notion of a moral panic about a broken patent system um, and invalid patents. And, um, and so you had this very one-sided piece of legislation that was enacted where, you know, where Congress said, we have to address this problem. We have to address this problem of this uh, alleged, uh, you know, abuse of the patent system um, <clears throat> by people, you, you know, receiving invalid patents and, and suing um, companies like Google and, and, and Apple. Uh, which at the time claimed, you know, as the white hat. So oh, we're, you know, the great innovators. Uh, we're not stealing anyone's technology, um, which also has now shown to be false. Uh, and, do, do, uh, do no evil, JK. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, so they created this agency where they essentially, or this tribunal where they essentially said to it, all right, you have one mission, cancel patents, invalidate patents, eliminate patents, and we're going to impose almost no restrictions on you and achieving that mission. Now, I mean, in any other context, I mean, where you, you say, okay, Congress creates an administrative agency, imposes almost no limits on them, and gives them an, uh, a mission to achieve. Are any of us shocked that they become captured by that mission and driven by that mission and will do anything in their power to achieve that goal of, the, of their mission? Um, and this is exactly what has happened with the, P, with the PTAB. Um, and so you just have had extensive abuses of process, abuses of basic norms of rule of law. Um, you know, something that uh, in a, uh, that Josh had mentioned among his new, uh, identification of, of numerous problems with the PTAB, of course, is panel stacking, where they were literally adding judges, <laughs> adding, or I shouldn't call it, Sorry, I'll follow Chief Justice Roberts' uh, uh, point in one of the PTAB uh, cases where he said to the attorney, "What did you call these people at the PTAB? Judges? I don't. I use a different term for that. <laughs> so um, these administrative patent judges, as they're called, that they were literally adding administrative patent judges to panels. You're supposed to have three judges. One notorious case they ended up with seven total APJs in order to reach the preordained right result. Um, I mean, and it's almost shocking." These are lawyers who are, these are all lawyers. These are people with law degrees. They went to law school. And even before law school, they, you know, they learned about, and everyone has, has studied in history, you know, the whole controversy over FDR's court packing plan. And yet no one blinked an eye and no one said, hmm, maybe there's a problem here in due process and the rule of law, more administrative judges to a panel in order to reach a preordained right result. Uh, so this is, so, the Prevail Act really is necessary, um, you know, to just bring some some basic norms of due process and 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 the rule of law back to this tribunal, which is 
absolutely necessary, especially given that many of the very important reforms that were adopted by uh, Director Iancu during his tenure at the, at, at the Patent Office as director, including the, you know, the discretionary denials through the FinTiv um, uh, um, uh, uh, test um, and his creation of this kind of appellate and pro and precedential decision making process as a way to you know to address this uh, you know and the the superficial uh, justification or, or rationalization for panel stacking um, that uh, you know have been eliminated for all intents and purposes by the current director. So you know so you just have this kind of whip sign back and forth uh, you know of different procedures, different rules, things changing on a month to month basis. And this is exactly, you know, what undermines and kills the function of property rights as re a reliable and, and effective legal platform for people to rely on to say, okay, my rights will be the same today as they will be five years from now. So you can invest in me and we can go into the market and spend hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions to create a supply chain to produce new products and services. Um, so this is so um, th it's th the Prevail Act is incredibly important um, and, and, and it's absolutely necessary if we're going to have any semblance of the patent system that drove the U.S. innovation economy for the 200 years before the AIA was uh, created, the PTAP. We're also publishing clips from the Mossoff Minute as short form videos on Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts and even TikTok. You can check out these shorts and follow us at Aurora Patents on all three platforms. Now, before diving into the deep on all things SBIR, STTR, Bidole, and patent-specific hooks when using government grant money, we'd like to provide some extra context, as we often do, for those newer to patenting on some important concepts that come up in today's talk. One of the most important things to understand for navigating one of the sharpest patent-related corners with government grants is the distinction between enablement and reduction to practice. We've spoken a ton about enablement in prior episodes, and I'd highly recommend you go back and check those out because there are a few more important areas of patent law to grasp when it comes to getting a quality patent that will actually stand the test when it comes time to assert your hard-earned patent rights. When patents are examined by the patent office and later litigated in a courtroom, several sections of U.S. statute come into play in determining if the claims in the patent are eligible, useful, novel, non-obvious, and enabled. Reasons for rejection or invalidation fall under a handful of sections of U.S. Code Title 35. Section 112 covers enablement or describing the invention in sufficient detail to allow it to be practiced by someone skilled in the art without undue experimentation. You're trading disclosure for exclusivity. This is the fundamental deal of the patent system, and enabling public disclosure is a core requirement to getting and retaining a granted patent. This allows others to take the invention and reduce it to practice. In other words, practically make it work in the real world as you have described in your patent application. In many cases, to get a granted patent, you wouldn't have yet had to actually reduce the invention to practice yourself, say with something like a testable prototype. The panel gets into more particulars on this, but it's important to understand that the government grant stipulations care more about actual reduction to practice and less about basic enablement when it comes to what aspects of your invention will come with automatic license implications when working with grant funds. Now, some of this actually plays out, though, in terms of when and why innovators will seek government funding will often depend somewhat on where the invention falls on the art spectrum. Practitioners put inventions into one of two categories, predictable and unpredictable art. This distinction comes up quite a bit in today's talk in terms of what it means for both enablement and reduction to practice standards. We discussed the difference in greater depth back in Season 2, Episode 10 on patenting biological, chemical, and emerging technologies. 
that in essence, some technologies like those rooted in physics and mechanics are considered predictable by the U.S. Patent Office, while others like biological and chemical technologies are generally considered unpredictable. It follows that the amount of disclosure required to enable an invention is related to the predictability of the technology, and so-called unpredictable arts require more description to teach a reader how to make and use the technology. One last piece of new terminology that comes up is margin rights. This is a provision of the Bayh-Dole Act that causes some confusion and alarm. As discussed, when you take government grant money, that often comes with a requirement to license your patent to the government for free. This doesn't prevent you from licensing to others for profit and doesn't have to impact your ownership rights. It just means Uncle Sam gets free use in exchange for your now federally supported research. Marchand rights, however, can take that one step further and would allow the government to demand that you license or even assign your invention to another entity, potentially even outside of the government. As the panel will discuss, this hasn't been as horrifying in practice as it sounds like it could be, but it's important to understand the potential risk and distinction when compared to the express rights that come by default for the federal government. Now, without further ado, here's our conversation on government grants. Take it away, Ashley. So today what I wanted to really talk about, this has been something on my agenda for a long, long time, but we just had other stuff that we wanted to dig into. But I wanted to basically look into the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 and its provisions, and then look at the types of grants that kind of fell under this for, you know, in particular companies that we work with, and then um, some of the interesting nuances of, of invention reporting and protection requirements. Um, and so there's definitely, you know, some stuff I'm sure most of us are familiar with, but there's definitely some nuanced stuff that was even a little surprising to me. So I'll kind of just go through some of that. So the Bayh-Dole Act was signed in 1980. This is a picture of Senators Birch, Bayh, and Bob Dole at the U.S. Capitol in February of 1978. And the act provides NIH funding recipients incentives to promote the utilization of inventions conceived or reduced to practice, or so-called the subject invention, which we'll talk about what that definition is, in the performance of federally supported research and development. And so really the goals of the Bayh-Dole Act were to promote utilization of inventions arising from federal money, encourage maximum participation of small businesses in federally supported research and development, was to promote collaboration between commercial concerns and nonprofit organizations, um, to ensure that inventions made by nonprofits and small businesses are used in a manner to promote competition and enterprise, but without encumbering uh, research and discovery promote the commercialization and public availability of inventions, ensure that the government obtains sufficient rights in federally supported inventions to meet the needs of the government and protect the public against non-use or unreasonable use of inventions, and also minimize the cost of administering policies in this area. So there's lots of reasons that the Bayh-Dole Act was, you know, put into act, but it's really that, you know, again, incentivize innovation, promote collaboration between, you know, small business and nonprofits and the government, and also, you know, make sure that the government can get its piece when it wants to. So before we get into various provisions of the Bayh-Dole Act, um, I want to go through some definitions because these aren't, you know, there's definitely some meat here. So they talk about subject invention everywhere. And this is any any invention conceived or first actually reduced to practice in the performance of work under a funding agreement. Um, and so the interesting thing is, is that even if you are not, um, and this will come up later, even if you're not going to pursue protection on an invention, you still have a duty to disclose that invention to the federal agency. And so it's not just 
any invention that you want to be protected, it's any invention that you've conceived of or first actually reduced to practice in the performance of the work under the funding agreement. And this is also interesting too, because even just from a, when you think about the patent process and inventions versus inventions and you know federal money, you know, you go through the patent process when you've conceived of it and can at least um, constructively reduce it to practice, right? What, you know, you can kind of describe it and, you know, make some drawings about it. But here, um, the government grant, you know, the, the provisions of BADOL apply if you've conceived of it or first actually reduced it to practice. And there's actually some, like, some meat there. So from a conception perspective, um, there's lots of you know areas where this is described in the MPEP and case law and def different um, legislation, but it's the formation in the mind of inventor of a definite and permanent idea of complete and operative invention, conception and means of putting the idea into practice. So this again is you know beyond just I have an idea. It's the fact that I have an idea and I have some thoughts around how I would actually put it into practice, right? So it has more formation than just an idea. And that's kind of gets at the question we always get also, of, you know, can I patent my idea? And it's like, well, you know, when does an idea become an invention? And it's really that conception, right? It's that formation in the mind of not only the idea, but the operative nature of it and the means of putting it into practice, right? And that's where you finally actually have an invention, um, that is patentable rather than just um, an idea, right? Um, and of course, anybody refute me, speak up, tell me something else. If, you know. And then from a first actual reduction of practice, there's quite a bit of case law about this. So um, a lot of what's in the MPEP, actually the only place I could really find good, clear um, definitions in the MPEP was around interference proceedings, which we know are not really a thing anymore with America Invents Act. Um, but there's a lot of case law in other parts of, um, you know, federal rules and things that include additional language. A lot of times you'll find it as, um, I think, making the invention, I think is a lot of times how you see it. Yeah, the invention term is made. Um, made basically meaning conception or actual reduction of practice. So, but it basically means embodiment or a performed process meets every element of the claimed invention and the embodiment or process operated for its intended purpose. And in terms of what has caught, tripped a lot of people up in terms of federal money is that last piece there where it, it, it operated for its intended purpose. Um, and so, uh, let me see here, I have some notes here on the side. Um, yes, yeah, even when tests are conducted under bench or laboratory conditions, those conditions must fully duplicate each and every condition of actual use, or if they do not, then the evidence must establish a relationship between the subject matter, the test condition, and the intended functional setting of the invention. And where this is trip people up is that they think they actually reduce it to practice before they take federal money, and then they take federal money and do more testing, only to find out that the additional testing they're doing was considered by different court systems to be the first actually reduced reduction to practice of the invention. So their invention actually does fall under the federal money, even though they were trying to avoid that by first actually reducing it to practice in advance. And so some of the case law that's around this, well, some of the older one was this um, N. Ray Eddie L. King. He was a, this is kind of a sad story, but like an interesting story. He was literally just a guy that like operated forklifts and things like that for the Air Force. 
And, you know, so he's like loading planes and doing all these things. And he notes that the Air Force, so he has like no employment agreement that says that he, you know, when he invents something, the government owns it, right? Like it's like, he's just a guy, right? And so he invents, he notices that the government needs these pallet couplers. So he basically decides that he's going to, on his own time and with his own money, work in the evenings to come up with a pallet coupler. So he does, and he does some like, you know, preliminary testing on his own and makes this really great coupler. Well, then, you know, again, he thinks, you know, he's even like, con he contacted a patent practitioner to draft a patent application. So he's you know, clearly conceived of it and at least constructively reduced it to practice. He also even has a prototype, right? Like he's done like by all, it seems like all measures, a first actual reduction to practice. He then takes this to the Air Force and says, hey, like, look at this. I've solved your problem. Why don't you use this um, and see if it works for you? And so they basically had this four, these four criteria that these couplers had to have. And it's unclear from the record whether any coupler they had ever used had met all four criteria. But Eddie's had met at least three of the four criteria. So they're like, oh, this is freaking awesome, you know, especially because it like kept the pallets together in flight or something like that. Um, so anyways, but then, you know, the government starts to use this without, um, I think like, you know, proper licensing with Eddie because, you know, they had, they had contributed to it, right? They did the testing with the Air Force's resources. And so Eddie fights it and says, whoa, 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 no way. Like I did all this stuff before. And it was found that because, you know, Eddie had not actually tested it for the intended purpose, like he had not actually, you know, taken pallets and, you know, done whatever moved them about and whatever it was that the first actual reduction to practice was actually with Air Force money. And he, prior to that, had not actually reduced it to practice. So the government did, was able to um, take a license, you know, um, I don't think they owned it, but, you know, was able to get a license, you know, probably with reasonable, um, you know, like an all paid up license. I don't know what the provisions of the license were, but anyways, suffice it to say that the testing that he did was not sufficient. Um, to avoid the government having rights to the invention. And this was another case more way more recently that's actually not fully settled out yet. There was Ideal Innovations Inc. versus the United States, and this has been bouncing around the courts for a number of years, but there was several patent applications filed by Ideal Innovations in 2006. Um, Ideal Innovations tested the material for impact. So this was like an armored vehicle thing where they were going to basically wrap the chassis in some kind of metal to um, make it, um, you know, explosion proof or something. So when Ideal Innovations tested the material, they basically did a coupon, a small piece of metal, and then like tried to blow it up or something like that. And so this was the first actual reduction to practice because it showed that the test armor worked for its intended purpose. Well, one of the initial courts basically said, no, 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 this was a test of the armor, not of the invention. And the, and the invention being the armored vehicle or the chassis wrapped in this armor. Um, and so an actual test was needed to determine whether the prototype worked for its intended purpose. So when in 2007, Ideal Innovations entered a license agree agreement with the U.S., I can't remember which branch of the armed forces it was, but, um, and then, you know, had them do some testing, that was the first actual reduction to practice of the actual invention. And so again, you know, he, you know, the title and licensing provisions of that agreement were now different than what he had intended because, the first actual reduction of practice was using government resources, not his own. 
And so again, this is like a really tricky thing, you know, when, you know, there are companies and inventors who want to avoid using federal money for conception or actual reduction to practice to avoid kind of this uh, clause in their patents that we'll talk about and, you know, any kind of ability for the government to seek title to the invention or, you know, a non-exclusive license to it because they helped fund it. But it's really hard. Like you, you definitely have to do a lot before the grant kicks in to avoid the government having those different rights. Does anybody have any questions about those two cases? Okay. <laughs> I remember being back at companies that we had government grants like SBIRs or um, even bigger government grants. And um, like you said, we sort of knew that um, anything invented under using the government's money was subject to these provisions. And as far as I understand it or understood it, I'm not sure if it's changed, is that the government then would be able to use use the technology without paying, you know, they would basically own a non-exclusive license to anything that was invented under the under the grant. I don't I don't know all the details. I don't I'm not sure what other rights they may have to be able to like any type of ownership over the IP or be able to to, to say who could use it or dictate, you know, other sorts of licensing agreements. I'm not sure. Um, but like you were saying, I mean, we knew that was a stipulation. So we right. would always file all the provisionals or patent applications and do all of the enablement, right? Um, re sufficient reduction to practice, what have you, to enable the actual invention, you know, um, before we filed the grant, we saw it as just like any other type of disclosure. Um, so these cases are interesting that I do, I wonder, you know, it, it's, it's like a lot of the things we talk about, it's down, it seems like to me, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take on it, Ashley, if you think that it's really down to the details in these particular cases, like, if you could, from what we know of 112 and, and enablement and clarity and all that, if, if, if you filed as an inventor, um, <clears throat> enough provisionals or patent applications before the grant kicked in to fully enable it do, would you still i mean so actual reduction to practice to me is not necessarily required for full enablement so maybe right. that's really my question for you is do you do you see that as as a higher bar in this case Yes, I mean, I would agree because that's probably what I researched, but didn't include in here because you know I kind of went down that road and I was like, well, it's kind of different because so to satisfy section one twelve, you know, it's like the written description requirement, enablement, possession, you know, those kind of terminology, and yeah. I think you could achieve. I mean, now again, depends on what what technical area we're talking about, right? The mm -hmm. less predictable sciences, I think it's very easy easier. Right. Enable, provide written description, provide possession, proof of possession. Because, you know, no prototype is needs to be made to uh, prove possession, right? Like that's very clearly spelled out. Yeah. In the and so I think for less, you know, crazy inventions, you know, more, um, less uh, word, uh, more predictable yeah. arts, I think it's very easy yeah. Yeah. to get a patent without first actual reduction to practice. On in the more uh, you know highly technical areas or areas that are way more unpredictable, I think you you know to really truly enable it to really show you know show possession and 
um, written description, you know, you probably have to have some reduction to practice, but is it yeah. to reach the bar of actual reduction to practice, right? Because I can show in a, you know, like taking it to like a cancer case, right? If I'm right. saying that um, I want to cure, you know, or I want to provide a treatment for a BRCA gene um, driven breast cancer, I could put cells in a dish and put in some kind of inhibitor in that dish and show that, you know, the BRCA gene, um, you know, the, the, the transcription of it was decreased, right? The RNA coming off that gene was reduced, or I could show protein levels of BRCA down, or I don't even know what BRCA does, frankly, mm-hmm. breast cancer, right? <laughs> anyway, I can show that BRCA was affected, right? But that would not necessarily mean that it actually worked worked for its intended purpose, which was actually treating breast cancer, right? You'd actually have to go into humans or at least animals to show that. So in that case, I would say that I can't get first actual reduction to practice until I put it into at least an animal and probably ideally a human, right? And so I think that's, I I think it is going to be super case dependent, but I don't think that, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I also don't think that they're you know, there's complete, you know, I guess, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're not a complete overlap either, right? You don't get one by so, getting Yeah. Yeah. So do you think like, let's say you're in a predictable art space and you have not actually reduced it to practice, only done modeling and what have you, that the, that the patent office under 112, you know, would say, okay, it is enabled, even though you haven't actually reduced it to practice. Now you go into a government grant and they say, oh, well, it was totally enabled. You clearly own this invention, but we still own it because you never reduced it. You Because you reduced it to practice under our dollar. 100%. Is that I, how you understand yep. it? Because it's, it's, an, it's an or provision, right? So you either if you either conceive of the invention under the government grant or first actually reduce it to practice. Yeah. yeah. Your so I guess what your, your point is, if depending on the technology, it could be a higher bar or it may not be a higher bar. If it's a unpredictable art it's kind of a similar thing you have to reduce yeah. it to practice anyway or at least pretty close um but if it's uh, um if it's unpredictable sorry but if it's predictable um you may by the law by the law by the patent office own the invention but to, to in terms of the government grant who and um you would still be under some uh, agreement to to license it to the government yeah yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's honestly they're really smart in putting this in the Beidou Act because, like, I think you know you'd have to do a lot of development in almost any technical area, but especially the more unpredictable it is to actually first reduce it to practice and prove that it works for its intended purpose. Um, you know, you'd have to like that's a lot of work to do, and the whole reason you get these grants yeah. is to do that, right? So they're really smart in their language often, because it kind of often, catches everybody. Yeah right yeah that's interesting uh, but, but rest assured i'll share some other stuff with you later that like it doesn't seem as bad as it appears but kristen did you have something to add i do i do i have some clarifications so in our first to file patent system which is after the america invents act occurred you no longer have to reduce your invention to practice in order to just file your applications right and when I say reduce to practice. <clears throat> there are two kinds. You can actually reduce it to practice, which is what we're talking about here, and which is what the government um, grant situation says. And you can constructively reduce to practice. 
constructively reduced to practice is what you're doing when you file a regular patent application where the whole invention is completely disclosed, okay? So it didn't really go away. It was just a different sort of assessment of what reduced to practice means for the patent law side. For the government side, I absolutely agree. It, it can be a much more stringent thing. And because of that, if you are a company that has a first product or a first couple of patent applications, I don't think it's always smart to go after government grants if you are not reading the fine detail and understanding that they may own, and in some cases, an exclusive right, in some cases, a non-exclusive right. So you want to be careful when you go after these government grants to reduce to practice, because maybe you don't want to do it with your first few um, brilliant ideas. Maybe you want to do this a little further along the line. No, that's helpful. Thank you, Chris. I think additional detail. Um, oh. I mean, quick, I just curious, you know, if if it affects kind of the preference between so if one company was to apply for a company or I'm sorry, for a grant um that has yet to reduce for practice their invention versus another company that has, do you think the first company would probably have preference or does that weigh into it? I mean, it would be I mean, from a government grant perspective, I think it'd be pretty surprising. I mean, unless you're, you know, it's one thing if it's a response to a request for proposal, right? You're going to get a lot of proposals that are competing. And I don't know what the provisions are about that. There's basically two grant types in particular I'm going to talk about today that impact the companies that we work with. And under those, and I think are more in line with what the ba with what the Badal Act was intending, especially around that partnership between government and small businesses or government and research institutions or between government, small businesses and research in institutions. Um, so, you know, from a, you know, but from like a request for proposal perspective, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, and that might get more to Kristen's point where, you know, the licensing provisions of those might be a little bit more case dependent. And then obviously, you know, they're weighing different companies um, on lots of different parameters and it could, that could impact how they're weighing those companies. But I also don't know how, what the licensing structure looks like for um, for companies in that kind of setting where, like I said, where it's a request for a proposal or something like that. But I don't think it's as much of a, you know, in, in the types of grants I'm talking about today, I would be surprised if you got two companies doing the exact same thing or really highly similar, just because there's a whole bunch of just, you know, interesting research projects coming in across the whole spectrum. And so it'd be surprising that you would have two companies. I mean, now see it hasn't happened, but you know, surprising that be two companies, you know, at the same time, at the same entry period, applying for the same thing, right? See, but what I was kind of getting at it though is, you know, as far as not a return on investment, because I doubt that they're looking at it that way. But if if the if they see the the opportunity of a licensing agreement or something more mm -hmm. so with one company versus another, I wonder if if That's that would because well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, there's, well, the license provisions for these two grant types I'm talking about today are just like set. It's basically a non-exclusive, non-transferable, whatever license. Um, and so it's the same for every company coming through these two particular grant types. And um, I don't, but, you know, from a, where the company is in development and how that impacts their, their decision making, it's hard to say, but I will, you know, spoiler alert, in all of the years that Baydol has been enacted, you know, for their March in rights is basically what we're talking about here, the government's ability to kind of step in and say, okay, you have your invention and now I want to use it. 
There's only been eight petitions for marching rights since Baydol was enacted almost 40 years ago, and all those petitions were denied. So the likelihood uh-huh. of a government stepping in and saying, okay, you use federal money, and we have this ability to step in when we want to, and then like we actually do, there actually is no current case that that shows that they did do that. So oh. um, that's that's spoiler alert. So interesting. Yes. Um, all right, so let's get to the provisions of Baydol. And I, I left out the nonprofit ones because we don't really work with nonprofits, not to say they're not important. They're immensely important, but I just, I didn't go down the nonprofit trail. So I left off any nonprofit stuff. I think there was send Baydol provisions. I left off the seventh, which deals with nonprofits. Um, all right, so Baydol provisions, you have to disclose each subject invention to the federal agency within two months um, of becoming aware of the subject invention. You have to make a written election within two years after disclosure to the federal agency or within 60 days of any statutory period, which means like a public disclosure, an on-sale activity, or something of that nature. Um, And if you don't make that written election to keep the invention within two years, then the government can seek title. Otherwise, if you make the election, you retain the title to that subject invention, which means you own it, right? Um, three, agree to file a patent application prior to any statutory bar date and corresponding patent application in the U.S. within one year and other countries within 10 months. Both are extendable, and it's actually recommended that you almost automatically extend those timelines because, as we know, foreign country stuff, a lot of times you want to take a lot longer to do that. So you almost automatically, as a grant recipient, want to extend that foreign deadline as much as you are able so that you don't have to do it as quickly. Um, four, for elected inventions, the federal agency shall have a non-exclusive, non-transferable, irrevocable, paid-up license to practice any subject invention throughout the world. And that's to your point, Dave, the whole paid-up license piece. Um, the federal agency to require periodic reporting on the utilization of the invention and the obligation to include in patent applications a statement specifying that the invention was made with government support and that the government has certain rights. And then, like I said, there's a seventh one regarding nonprofits, but I didn't include that. So here's kind of the timeline. Again, that kind of just shows some of the reporting stuff. You have to report inventions. Again, that's all inventions, not just the ones that you want to protect. Within two months, uh, you have to make an election of that invention to keep the title within two years. And if you don't, then the agency can retain that title. Um, you have to confirm, you know, the license with the government, um, along with the initial patent filing. You have to do that initial patent filing within one year of election, unless there's some kind of extension, which is recommended. Um, and then, you know, again, you can request extensions of time for any statutory bar stuff. You have to do annual reports on utilization. Um, anytime you have a change in patent status, you have to update them and let them know. Like if you're going to discontinue prosecution, you need to let them know. And you have to include a final report uh, within 90 days after the project ends. And there's some details on that final report as well that I'll talk about in terms of inventions, but also data. And all these are reports. Uh Sorry, yeah, this is a great chart and like um, definitely things that need to be kept in mind, you know, for companies that are doing this sort of work um, under government grants. And I'll say this, you know, um, almost in every case, there's like yearly, if not quarterly, you know, reporting that you have to do for the grant itself, you know, um, uh, especially the bigger ones, you're physically meeting with people generally, right, um, regularly, at least once a year. And so um, 
the invention report within two months, though, is something that might fall in between those meetings. Um, so like, you know, when it, when I feel like, uh, in the, in the, um, grants that I've been involved in anyway, these sort of conversations are naturally always come up at grant review times and, and in these mini reports and, and of course in the larger reports, but that remembering that, that all disclosure to the government of any invention within two months is sort of its own thing that I think people don't always remember to do. Yeah, you'd almost have to have, you know, a person, a go-to person to put stuff into iEdison or have multiple accounts with the business where like anybody, like, if you know, I don't know, it's interesting. You'd have to, there's definitely a management piece of this, right? Within your company, yep. how do you manage this? You know, because if, if it's, what do they say? If it's no one person's responsibility, it's nobody's or something. <laughs> yeah. But I always look for sayings but it's something like that right if no one person's responsible then it's no but yeah then nobody's gonna do it right um yeah uh, just enough like we talk a lot in general about i don't know like marketing and sales being um looped in to yeah. ip team so like when you make an update to the website or when you put out customer material spec sheets like we should make sure that the ip team is in the loop and and that all those closures have been made and this is sort of a different another one of those where it's like your grant management team should be looped in with IP, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, almost says, you know, you should meet monthly probably to review it. And if there's nothing to review, then you just cancel the meeting, but there almost should be like a monthly, you know, for those organizations that are moving very quickly, right? There should be right. something more um, more standardized. Uh, so kind of getting to the margin rights. Um, so like I said, the federal agency can require the contractor to an assignee or exclusive licensee of a subject convention to grant a non-exclusive, partial exclusive, or exclusive license in any field of use to a responsible applicant or applicants upon terms that are reasonable under the circumstances. So what does this mean? What are reasonable? <laughs> it's uh, So practical application, if the government or the agency feels that effective steps are not being taken to achieve practical application of the subject convention in such field of use. Um, So you can imagine, of course, like if you had like a block, you know, supposedly a blockbuster drug that was going to like cure all cancer. If they didn't feel like you were, you know, achieve taking effective steps to achieve that field of use, they would, you know, they might want to march in. Health and safety need to alleviate health or safety needs, which are not current currently reasonably satisfied. Um, public use uh, requirements set by agency are not being reasonably satisfied. And actually, a lot the the in the forty two years since enactment, the eight petitions um, that were filed were largely around health and safety and public use. It was related to various drugs and either price problems with those drugs. Although the agency denied the petition because they said this, the drug is still adequately, it was price in the U.S. as compared to other wealthier nations, but they said that it was still, you know, adequately available to the public. It didn't present any healthy health or safety issues. And another one was around, um, apparently some drug manufacturer was having problems with their manufacturing line. And so somebody petitioned, you know, the, the NIH to basically say, please, you know, do march and rights to make this, to fix this. And they basically said, by the time that we open this all up for, you know, by the time we march in, open it up and people start making this drug and but go through the FDA to get their approval of the drug, because, you know, you can't just go under their approval. 
it, like the manufacturing thing should be sought, you know, well remedied by that point. So there's no use in it, right? That's that like that's a pointless argument. So they denied that one as well. Um, and then breach of agreement, if the government feels like, you know, you're in breach of the agreement, um, you know, then they're that they might then want to do a march in. But again, has only been petitioned eight times in the 42 years of Bay Dole, and all of them have been denied. So that's a good odds for clients who are, you know, concerned that if they use government money to really springboard their technology and have to include this clause in their patent, the likelihood of the government marching in on those rights, you know, if you consider how many have been issued, how many patents with government grant clauses have been issued, how many times March and petitions have been filed, and then those that have been allowed, which is zero, you know, your odds are pretty good. So these are not the patent holders that are filing these petitions. These are like third parties that are asking the government to step in. Correct. And I don't know who the third, I didn't look that deep into who the third parties were, but yes, it's other, hmm. I could actually pull it up on the side here because I think the link is in all of it. Interesting. Link didn't survive. Um, I'll share that. Yeah. I mean, do you have, a, apologies if I'm skipping ahead, but I'm curious, like how this actually works. Like, let's take the pallet coupler example so the, oh. the air force wants to use this pallet coupler who do they have fabricated like i mean are they by the government having a license to use it are they then able to go to whoever they want and say here's a great design make this for us and then that manufacturer is allowed to make it and sell it to the government at a profit because it seems like that <laughs> manufacturer would then need to have the license you know that's a good question. Presumably, probably, and that's probably totally what the government would do. <laughs> it seems like it, but it's um like if I I think if you go back to the uh, uh, provisions, it was like they have a fully paid up license, right? Or maybe it's this one. I don't know. I don't know. But oh, they can. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. can. Yeah. Yep. For that are by dole, they have a non-exclusive, non-transferable, irrevocable, paid up license. To practice it throughout to the world. Practice it. So if they wanted to set up their own manufacturing facility to make it they and and make it for themselves, they clearly could. Yep. But does that it's non-transferable. So they can't just give that to um uh, uh, allied signal to start producing this pallet coupler. You know what I mean? Yeah. But wouldn't that be an agent relationship? So even uh, being that they're working at the, you know uh instruction yeah. of the licensee maybe yeah. i'm curious i mean it seems like there has to be a big a vehicle a mechanism for ty maybe you're right maybe that's what, exactly what it is um you know in the past i worked for solar companies right and like so you would get like department of defense department of energy tons of big government agencies very interested in solar right um but they were never proposing to build a manufacturing facility to make solar panels they, or cells. They were always talking about buying these things from third parties. So I was, I've, I've actually always wondered how that would really work in practice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to be able to, as part of a license, you would think you would have to be able to set up your own supply chain to be able to do it, right? But yeah, how do you manage that supply chain to make sure that, you know, problem that you're as the licensee you're retaining control because it probably comes down to control right um Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. that's next month dave you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you <go>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good question though um very good question i do not have a good answer um 
All right. So switching gears here a little bit. So what types of clients grants are applicable for our clients in particular? And so I'm going to focus on the small business technology transfer grant, the STTR, and the small business innovation research grant, the SBIR. And I think there's maybe a few others, but not really for our clients, right? Because these are um, either, you know, these two, so first back in for a second. So these two grants are the largest source of early stage capital for life science startups in the United States. So the NIH grants $1.2 billion every year in combined SBIR, STTR programs. So that's pretty sizable if you think about it. And then, you know, there was some concern back in 2022 that these were actually going to expire, both these grant types, and there was not going to be any funding available for them. But then in September of 2022, Congress did pass the Extension Act, the SBIR and STTR Extension Act of 2022, which renewed, um, this is all administered under the Small Business Administration. So they renewed all of it under the SBA program for the next three years. So it's now available again, you know, through 2025, um, or, you know, assuming that takes place as of that date. So anyways, what are these two grants? So the STTR is to stimulate scientific and technological innovation between small business concerns and research institutions. So it's, you know, making a partnership between you and the university down the road. Um, and there's a three, three phase structure, feasibility, R&D and commercialization, but this, the commercialization phase cannot be used for, STTR funds cannot be used for the commercialization phase. SBIR, it's to stimulate technological innovation in the private sector, for-profit institutions, for ideas that have potential for commercialization. So again, this is between the private sector uh, you know, for you know for for-profit institutions or in the private sector, and again, it's feasibility R&D commercialization where the SBIR funds cannot be used for commercialization. Um, so, and I, you know, and I know a lot of our clients actually use SBIR. I've heard less around STTR, but I think when you get into more of the unpredictable sciences, that's where I've seen clients turning more towards STTR because you need that bench space, that research to kind of really propel it forward. Whereas when you have SBIR, you know, it's, that's like the IoT, the digital health innovations where, you know, you're really trying to launch your technology forward. Um, all right. So do SBIR and STTR grants cover IP costs? Um, they could. So there's a technical and business assistance funds under both of these grants. And so they could be used for patent prosecution costs related to obtaining U.S. patent protection, which is nice that they include this because they do require recipients to obtain patent protection. So it's nice that they allow this. It's not a ton of money, though. In phase one, it's $6,500. In phase two, it's $50,000. Um, budget location, you need to include these patent costs in the commercialization assistance budget or other direct costs area of the grant. And um, so the patent costs do include practitioner fees and USPTO fees. So that's also nice. Not all grants include fees. Um, a lot of times those are payable by the recipient. Filings, um, the, the grant money can be used for all USPTO-related filings, so provisional, PCT, non-provisional, continuation, continuation in part, divisional patent applications. can also be used for search, freedom to operate searches, market analysis, competitor IP landscape and products, searching costs. These all may be allowable. Again, depending on the grant type, you need to do your grant research. There are exclusions, though. You cannot use it for foreign-related costs. So this includes foreign attorneys, foreign patent offices, or translation fees. 
And generally licensing fees are not allowable since these are typically not required in the performance of the award. Another interesting thing that we get asked sometimes, especially for, you know, especially now in this, you know, large language model, AI, ML, all that kind of world where data and data sets are really important, you know, do, you know, what are the provisions for data versus inventions under Beidole, specifically SBIR, STTR grants? So if it's an idea, concept, design, or method visible to the naked eye, naked eye, definitely patent it per the SBIR, STTR, Beidole provisions. If it's recorded or written technical information or data developed under SBIR funding agreements, this data and information can be kept secret under a government non-disclosure obligation under the grant. This only applies when it has been written down. So the data or whatever, the technical information needs to be written down. And there is a fixed protection period of 20 years. Now, what does the go government would do with that data after 20 years? I don't know if they publish it. I don't know if they use it, you know, or they just, you know, I'm sure they just had to put a window on it, but they probably, you know, probably just sits in some database somewhere. I don't know. So that's another thing we'd have to look into, but, um, and then, but the caveat is here, don't use, don't include your privately funded data then in those data sets. Um, because obviously then, you know, that gets confused with those data and then you have this fixed protection window. But yes, so you can have protection of data under these grants, but it's not through the iEdison, you know, put the in innovation into the system. It's record it, write it down, um, and make sure it's in your final report for the grant to make it clear that you have these data and that they need to be um, kept under a non-disclosure obligation. Which I think, and the other, yeah, I mean, it basically talks about having a legend in your data. Um, make sure the first page of the cover page includes a statement that it contains SBIR, SCTR data, and make sure that the subsequent pages include authorized legend of, of simply SBIR, SBIR, STTR protected data. Um, yeah, and so this also could include computer software, right? Um, so you could include uh, a legend on printed material or a uh, transmittal page. Um, and it may say that has both patent and data rights. So you just, you know, again, it's kind of like almost like trade secret, right? You want to include notice of it. And so I think that's really important here too, is have put notice on these documents, what provisions of the grant apply. So just kind of sum it up in these next two slides. So advice for government grant recipients, mark your data, especially mark it in a final report, Report all your subject inventions, all inventions through iEdison, not just the patentable ones. Make sure you track your statutory bars. And of course, that's for everybody. Your whole company needs to track it for more than just a grant for practitioners like us as well. And make sure you report these bars to your practitioner and your agency. And then also understand U.S. manufacturing requirements for, I don't think I got into this in some of the requirements, but, um, you know, did I, where did that, where did that end up? It must be in, in a note section I had. So, you know, you can have, oh, maybe it's on the next slide. These almost should have been reversed. Um, there are U.S. manufacturing requirements because it is U.S. money. And if you want to give a license to somebody else, especially exclusive license to another company, you have to get approval from the agency. And that uh, licensee has to be able to manufacture it in the United States or have a really compelling reason why it cannot. And that's actually in the government grant gotcha slide, which is um, there is, you cannot give an exclusive license to anybody else, right? Because you already have a non-exclusive license with the government, but you could, if it were approved by the agency in advance, 
and is manufactured substantially in the United States. So it is possible, but it has to be requested, approved, and manufactured in the United States. Um, other gotchas, um, again, if the subject invention is unelected at two years, then the government receives title of the invention. So if you don't want them to own it, then make sure that you um, elect that invention at two years. And this is the biggest one they came across that kind of blew my mind, but kind of makes sense in terms of controlling these things. If you hire a subcontractor to perform some of the work, so let's say I'm, you know, I'm a main contractor for the grant, right? I'm the contractor that got the government grant. And then I hire some subcontractors to perform the work. And let's say I even have a Loctite amazing subcontractor agreement that says that I own as a company, as a contractor, own everything, you have an obligation to assign everything to me, that doesn't matter. Any subject invention that came from that subcontractor cannot be assigned to your company. They mm -hmm. still own it and the subcontractor will retain ownership. And I think the reason, Josh and I opined about this a little bit, I think the reason for that is, is they don't want some entity being created that takes up all of these grants and then just finds a whole bunch of underlings to do it for them. And then they get all of the title to it. And, you know, but then also like take up all the government grants. And so this is a huge gotcha that I wasn't even aware of that, you know, you just need to um, really make sure that you're, that if you use subcontractors to do some of the work that they are just like executing technical documents and things like that, right? That they're not conceiving or first actually reducing to practice because it could be a really huge boondoggle for your company. All right, so that is it. And David J just had to jump off. Um, but anybody, any other thoughts, questions? Just a comment that, you know, it, it, with grants, and I've been there myself in previous projects, it's it's always so appetizing to look at non-diluting, you know, capital coming in. But man, it's really cool to talk about some of the ramifications because you don't, you don't see this part of it. You know, and it's always just, non-diluting capital you <laughs> got free money <laughs> yeah. I mean, kind of largely is i mean given the marching rights that have been you know denied over the years and how few of them there have been but still i mean it's there's still some hooks and if you're not dotting all your i's and crossing your t's you can really mess things up so if there is ever an issue you've now dug yourself a pretty big hole yeah so but otherwise i don't have any any follow-up? That's great. I I don't work with this a lot, so it's really nice to see all the ins and outs. Yeah, it was. If anybody's interested, I can share. There's a, there's some other stuff in there too, but I basically created a huge Word doc of just you know some of the links that I used for this, but also just and also like I was pulling some of that you know to, was it David J's question around possession and prototyping and stuff like that. I kind of and also it's partly because Josh, <laughs> when he thought I was going to do this. He took it in a very different direction than what I had intended. So he had all these questions in there. And I was like, I don't know if that really applies, but I'm going to like run it to ground to some degree just to make sure I'm not crazy. Um, and it still does apply kind of, but it's kind of to the extent that we talked about with Dave. Um, but anyways, I can share that doc with anybody who wants to go slightly deeper or read some of the notes and things I had pulled together. But this like, I think distills it all down relatively concisely. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, Cool. Well, awesome. Well, thanks everybody then. And otherwise, that is it. All righty. Thanks. Yep. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.
Bye. All right, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening, and remember to check us out at aurorapatents.com for more great podcasts, blogs, and videos covering all things patent strategy. And if you're an agent or attorney and would like to be part of the discussion or an inventor with a topic you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcast at aurorapatents.com. Do remember that this podcast does not constitute legal advice, and until next time, keep calm and patent on.